Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. What did he do? I'm sorry. Pack one bag. Be ready in 10 minutes. If we do the right thing here, it will escalate. What's about to happen might seem like imperfect parenting. Why are you doing this, Tim? Why is he doing this to you? Hello and welcome to Still Watching the Mosquito Coast, presented by Vanity Fair and Apple TV+. I'm Preeti Chibber, uh, co-host of Desi Geek Girls and author. And I am Chris File. I am a freelance writer and the co-host of the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast. We're here to talk about the first four episodes of the new Apple TV Plus drama series, The Mosquito Coast, which stars Justin Thoreau and Melissa George. And later in the episode, we'll be sharing a conversation I had with Melissa George about what we've seen from the series so far, especially her huge character moment in episode four. The show is based on the novel by Paul Thoreau, who, as you may have heard, is also the uncle of the show's star, Justin Thoreau. The book was adapted into a movie in 1986, starring Harrison Ford, but as we'll talk about, the new series is really leaning in on telling its own story. So, Chris, on your podcast, This Had Oscar Buzz, you guys like to do a 60-second plot description for each show you're discussing. So would you like to do the honors of walking us through what we've seen on Mosquito Coast thus far? Yeah, absolutely. I'll um, at least get us through the first four episodes. In two, one, go. Okay, the Mosquito Coast follows the Fox family, led by their father, Allie, who's a small-time inventor obsessed with corporate consumerism, and their mother, Margot, who is isolated from her seemingly affluent parents. Their daughter, Dina, is the more rebellious child of the to the father's, like, paranoid strictures, while their son, Charlie, is way more quietly doting. The Foxes are... Uh, also under one of many false identities, and go on the run once they face eviction and federal agents are on their trail. Uh, they convince a connection to help them cross the border into Mexico, but are met by a militia resulting in a shootout that leaves their connection dead, but his associate Chewie alive as they trek through the desert. Chewie gets bitten by a snake and is revived uh, by a cartel that take the foxes in. Foxes are then separated with Charlie's life threatened, and it's hinted that Allie had formerly uh, played a part in the death of their members, but then with Chewie Chewie's help and Margot's like emerging uh, wits and power, the family escapes to continue on their path of unwitting destruction as they evade the authorities. That was amazing. <laughs> that like, was a very that was a very truncated um, <laughs> uh, description of the first four episodes, which all feel really packed. I mean, I I even went back and watched the movie for this, and like when we say that the show is definitely taking its own angle with this material. It really is like, it almost feels like it's building towards this huge family odyssey with each 
episode kind of like a vignette with a whole different location, a whole new set of stakes um, that just keeps like building and mounting and getting more and more intense. Yeah, I was excited to see. Like, I didn't, I didn't know anything about the show coming into it, um, except that I love Justin Thoreau and basically everything he's ever done. Uh, and so I was excited to see him in a new prestige drama because you know he has a, a great track record there. And every episode is so tense and so like, like my heart rate just goes up and up and up and up. And I feel like what they've really got a great handle on is managing that tension and letting it grow at this like strangely, like somehow combo slow pace and fast pace, Mm -hmm. right? Where it's like so much happens in each episode, but they're moving incrementally forward. And also uh, as the family is kind of going on this odyssey, we learn more and more um, about their background that actually recontextualizes what we thought about them or what we knew about them, Um, especially thinking of Margot and her call to her family that kind Mm -hmm. of kicks off what the first episode or is very early in the first episode and uh, the kind of tension and almost terror to uh, Melissa George's performance where she is calling her family and it's, it seems very dangerous for her to do so. You almost wonder because we've been introduced to Allie's paranoia if there was like um, a, a some type of thing that she wasn't going along with what this family is. But ultimately it turns out that there's more of a conspiracy at play and that uh, there may actually be some surveillance on this family that they are trying to escape. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because I I was of the same mind about Margot initially because of that phone call mm-hmm. and because of the kind of passive way she interacts with what's happening in her family. You know, she's kind of isolated in her room, typing away while all the action is happening around her. But there's that moment where the um, surveillance has kind of come to fruition. The police have found them. Allie is like getting all his stuff together in his workshop and she comes in and I thought it was going to be this big blow up fight of like, you can't keep making us go anywhere. And then it flips and she's super in and she's Mm -hmm. all in on this with him. And I was like, oh, okay, that's, you are a far more active part of this than I anticipated you being. Mm -hmm. But uh, like, as it goes on, um, that's one thing I'm glad you brought up Justin Thoreau from the beginning, because I think he's giving a really interesting performance as well, because it could very quickly kind of become this overly paranoid, like, you know, we've seen those performances before by people who like are distrustful of the world, you know, they have these like, uh, I mean, his character specifically is kind of about consumerism and waste that's like at the root of our culture. And it could be very easy for him to be giving this broad loud you know kind of you know from a soapbox shouting performance but he's actually um it's incredibly low key and builds in this paranoid sense that like when we actually do get these reveals um about his connection to the nsa um it it makes so much sense Mm -hmm. to in this character whereas he could have very easily lost us by doing something perhaps bigger yeah like something kind of absurd i think the moment that uh turned it for me was in i want to say it's the second episode it's the second episode um or maybe the end of the first it's the end of the first sorry when um his daughter saves him from getting arrested from the police she rams into the car Mm -hmm. uh dina rams into the car with with uh the truck and she pulls him out and he's sitting in the passenger seat while she's driving away and he looks so proud of her (laughs) <laughs> and it's this like very quiet moment that Thoreau plays like wonderfully because he's just staring at her almost in like awe and love and like, wow, like look at what she's done at, after she rammed her truck into a police car. Yeah. I, I like, mean, yep, the show okay. takes these kind of really bold leaps um, and the especially from episode to episode, because each episode is very different. And like Mm -hmm. we mentioned, the stakes get higher and higher, but it's kept really grounded by these subtle performers that are, you know, making this really believable family. I I think this is like a good point to talk about Allie and kind of, um, you know, there's, there is this notion of 
family men who are driven to these desperate, desperate measures. And I think a lot of what we were talking about plays into that with Thoreau. But it mm-hmm. by the end of the fourth episode, it's almost it's a subversion of that notion of like, I have to take care of my family. I'm the patriarch of this family. Clearly, what we watch over the course of these four episodes is every decision he makes, we are meant we're not necessarily meant to follow him on it because he is Mm -hmm. clearly through performance showing us as he's getting a little more and more unhinged and it's out of his control as much as he wants it to be inside of his control. The paralleling of the uh, episode two, when he has to get out and talk to those militiamen and the end of episode four, where he's on his knees and Chewie is pointing the gun at him was Mm -hmm. just a, like, I thought that was a great, progression for us to be like you're not the hero like you are you are throwing things away and i i feel like the show has played it really interestingly thus far yeah and kind of spotlighting the especially in that final monologue from chewy in episode four the kind of that the fox family can kind of also be a product of the type of you know destruction and consumption that they you know have that they you know, think that they are against ideologically. Um, yeah, and it's it's also an interesting trope, this whole, like, uh, patriarch in crisis um, that you see in a lot of TV shows, like something like Breaking Bad. It feels like a subversion of that, too. Um, it's certainly a subversion of this character, at least in the film version, if uh, listeners had seen the Harrison Ford one, which is probably closer, not exactly like a Walter White, but, you know, closer in what you expect to see from this type of narrative. Um in that, you know, he is kind of giving the, like, loud, uh, shrieking performance. Um, and it's also just a character that's way more... Um, th- this version, I think, is way more interested in, like, complexity and its, you know, context in this type of genre. Well, what's nice is they're not giving us this sort of... Like, Walter White, for example, you had... He, he had cancer. He couldn't pay for it. There was this sympathetic, like, sympathetic note to him. Mm-hmm. that I think this show has done a good job of not necessarily like falling prey to because yes, they're like, they have these bills that they can't pay. He's not getting paid enough, but Thoreau plays it with such anger that mm-hmm. it kind of cuts through that sympathy a little bit. You know, his reaction to his daughter having a cell phone was so wild and so uncomfortable and this like complete isolation of these kids um, or the kind of... um off offhand way he reacts to a cop who asks like should my kid shouldn't your kid be in school whatever it is kind of cuts through any notion of like intense sympathy you can have for this Mm -hmm. man because there is clearly this like i am better than everybody around me kind of thing that's going on (laughs) (laughs) well and i think as we as the show has progressed and we learn a little bit more of the why that type of behavior is there and perhaps a little bit why you know margot goes along with it i don't think the explanation of it or the reveal uh does anything to pacify Mm -hmm. uh his bad behavior throughout yeah, I agree. I don't think they ever say his bad behavior is okay because the ends justify the means. I think that, right. that they are making the point that he ha- like he makes poor choices. Like episode four to me is so fascinating. It's the one that focus like kind of shifts the focus onto Margot in a really wonderful way where it's her mm-hmm. tension that is bristling. Like Ali almost comes off as naive in this episode. When he just kind of goes off, leaves his family, like, separated, all those things. And Margot is the one that we get to see being like, go get your brother. Like, we, this is bad. We need to leave. And so when she takes, like, there's, I think, um, Rupert Wyatt, who directed the first two episodes, he, in talking about the character of Margot, calls her the patriarch. He says, she's actually Mm -hmm. the patriarch of this family. And you really come to, like, see that come to fruition in episode four. Yeah, it's structured really well over these episodes, too, because that doesn't click into place for us in the audience. And, like, Margot kind of doesn't, you know, take, uh, like, reveal herself to be that until we're getting some really crucial information at the same time, too. So there's this hugely satisfying thing to, you know, 
a lot of elements clicking into place. And uh, like I said earlier, you recontextualize what you've seen. Meanwhile, the moody version of Fleetwood Mac's Gold Dust Woman plays, <laughs> and it's uh, it's just good, satisfying TV in that way. <laughs> It was like that dinner sequence. So this episode um, introduces Ophelia Medina as Lucretia because they come into this villa in uh, Mexico and are clearly there's something off going and we find out she is the head of the family. There's a great setup to her character um, when someone says you want to appeal to her better nature, but she doesn't have one. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a really good villain. Like, I can already tell. <laughs> um, and so the the standoff that Lucretia and uh, Margot have in the dining room when they are forced to have dinner with them after they've separated Charlie, the son, away from the family in order to try to take control is, I think, one of my favorite parts of all four episodes was that conversation mm-hmm. between these two complex women. And I think that kind of uh, that mirroring, which is unexpected for both characters, but then like comes together at the same moment, also kind of helps uh, subvert um, like concerns that this might be the more cliche version that's more problematic of like this type of villa that they're presenting and, you know, how we've seen those type of characters presented on screen. Mm-hmm. Um and then that it just kind of becomes this like standoff duet between the two women was also very satisfying. It was right. Like I, the moment where I'm, and I'm not rooting for this family. Like it's clear, like obviously I want the kids to be able to get out of this unscathed, but for the most mm-hmm. part, like I'm not rooting for this family because of how poorly they've impacted the people around them on multiple levels. And frequently mm-hmm. it's people of color around them that Absolutely. are getting like negatively impacted by these, by this family's decisions. But that moment when Margot echoes Lucretia and says, he won't be back until I say so, if at all, I was like, Oh, the goosebumps. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, of course, the episode ends with uh, Chewie, who, like, I hope we do get to see more of Chewie. I just want to know that he's reunited with his daughter. (laughs) I know, Um, he's so good. uh, Played by Scotty Tovar, who's giving a really good performance. um, And we'll we'll see if we see more of him. Um, But he gets to have this monologue that actually gets to say the thing that we in the audience are thinking, which I, you know, it just, the way some of the other episodes had ended, it felt like it um, could have... Uh, not gone there, mm-hmm. and I, it, I was really glad that it did, um, and that he finally we get to see this family uh, called out in a way or held to task um, in a way that, like, we do as an audience want to see that underlined in a way, right? Like that moment where they roll up to the bus stop and. Allie leans forward and is like, you can get out here. And I was like, you're just gonna, I, I like yelled at my screen. I was like, you're just gonna <laughs> leave him here. Like, no, 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 no. That is not okay. So I, yeah, I agree with you. Like Scotty Tovar in this moment is excellent and watching him like get out of the car and force Allie to kind of recognize his complicity in the system that he supposedly is railing against just by virtue of not recognizing his own privilege and, the actual human beings he is throwing away. You know, he has that moment in the second episode where he's telling his daughter to look at the um, homeless population and like, look what America does when you're a broken consumer, he says. Well, look at what you're doing to these people you don't think matter as much as your life does. Like you're letting them just get taken out left and right for the purposes of your survival. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was really nice to like be able to see that confrontation happen on screen and be on the side of be on Chewie's side. Like I want, I want a spinoff for Chewie. Like I want to (laughs) see, I want this whole thing from his perspective. Like, let me see his, his story. (laughs) And um, I would also say that this uh, scene too, isn't just interesting in this way, but it's also interesting if you look at, what's happening with the two Fox children mm-hmm. in this scene, specifically Charlie, who has the moment where you really think he's going to pull out a yes. gun on Chewie and he makes the conscious decision, whether it's through safety or because of the ordeal he just went through uh, with his life or what he sees his father doing um, to not 
resort to violence or to actually diffuse the situation instead of accelerating it like the family has been doing every step of the way. Um, and I, I hope that that continues to play out um, with Charlie's uh, narrative arc as well, because, you know, you, you see Dina putting up more of a fight to the parents' ways. Um, so that was an interesting character beat as well. Yeah, I'm excited to see kind of where Charlie ends up going because that moment, to me, I, I wasn't sure how to read that moment. You know, Charlie is a very, I think Charlie is the most naive of everyone because he has been so isolated and is so doting on his parents. Like they really did a disservice to their children by not preparing them for for what could potentially happen. And so like when Charlie just goes off with the um, the son in earlier in the episode without talking to his family, I was like, kid, what are you doing? <laughs> what I understand that you're a little naive. However, this seems like a mistake. And so to build that, that whole conversation around guns and, and which is so fraught already and have it get to the point where he has this gun sitting in the waistband waistband. And I really didn't know which way it was going to go. Like genuinely, I had no idea what Charlie as the character in that moment would do. And so I'm looking forward to kind of seeing where that path takes him, his choice not to engage. Mm -hmm. It does set up a lot for where the season could go or what the fallout is. And it really feels like a peak. So I'm curious to see if it keeps building. I think because of the opening title sequence throughout, we can kind of sense where it's building um, (laughs) because of the various locations uh, within it. But there's a really interesting family dynamic going on as well. Yeah, it, as it becomes more and more clear that we're not like the these are not heroes meant to be sympathized with and rooted for. Like I'm, I I don't I didn't see the movie and I haven't read the book, so I don't know how the story is going to end. Yeah, I mean, I think if. Uh, any listeners have seen the movie and feel like they know what the show is. It's a very different show, at least from the movie. I haven't read the book, um, though the book seems a little bit like its own thing still, but it's it's all central around this family and uh, kind of these ideas of destruction and consumerism. But this one is, I think, far more ambitious than the movie in that, like we mentioned, as the stakes go up each episode, it feels like you're going to a new location, a new different set of uh, circumstances that the foxes, though they think that they are uh, protecting themselves, they are also uh, resulting in destruction and death around them. Uh, And I think it's the show is minded towards that rather than just having like what's almost a character study of Allie as the Mm -hmm. movie is. Um, And in finding these kind of like grander themes and this much larger scope, it can also uh, still pay as much mind to more nuanced character beats throughout. Yeah, there is a lot of potential for these kind of uh, strong character beats for characters who are not Allie, which I really appreciate because you have, you know, going back to this dinner sequence, I, I keep coming back to it because it's such a strong scene mm-hmm. across the four episodes because you have this character of Margot who so far has been so passive and has been so kind of just along for the ride. You know, she's had these moments, whether it's, you know, surprising me in going along with Allie's plan or her excitement when they're stealing the money. Um, or that scene where she dances with Chewy. Like, there are these, like, brief moments of character we get of her, but this dinner sequence where she takes full control, like, this is all her plan, is so fascinating. Well, and I also love seeing that scene from Melissa George, who's had such, like, a loaded career in so many things. Like, I remember her even being a kid and seeing her in the Amityville horror version that she was in um, as just kind of this really... Um, uh, like keyed in actress to these like kind of grand uh, situations or these extreme circumstances and always bringing a humanity. So it was kind of uh, really exciting to see the type of charge that she took in having a surprise because she's a really easy actress to uh, invest in and believe the circumstances as she presents them. Mm-hmm. It was it was great to watch her facial expression literally go from like kind of backed into a corner and horror to like oh no 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 we're not doing this yeah. I'm 
I'm in charge now. <laughs> well, and it'll be interesting to see if that is her just, if there is more to mm-hmm. it than her just taking charge in the situation, or if there's more to her background that we haven't discovered yet. Where do you think, or, or where, because for me, I would love to see more of that side of this character. Like, I want to mm-hmm. see that journey continue for Margot. Um, but what what are you kind of hoping to see from the rest of the series? I would definitely love to see definitely more of that from Margot, but definitely more of it in the family dynamic um, and kind of taking charge against Allie because it feels like as the thread goes on, um, and this would be true to the original movie and I guess the original book, uh, that he is going to lose some of the grip of what's happening and uh, leading them towards a certain level of their own destruction. But if Margot uh, kind of, for lack of a better term, gets in the driver's seat of what's <laughs> happening with this family. I think that could be really interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, we've got three more episodes to see what happens, and I can't wait to be on the edge of my seat the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and now let's hear Preeti's conversation with Melissa George, who plays Margot. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So I figure we'll get right into it. Um, I loved the four episodes that I've seen. It was super enjoyable to watch and very, very stressful, which was a fun experience. I always love when the show can like make my heart rate go up. I'm like, you're really, you guys are really good at what you're doing. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what drew you to the role of Margot? Like, what was it about the story of the series that speaks to you? For me, there was so many reasons, actually. Um, when I saw the script title on my, on my, the script that came in my inbox, um, I didn't know that Mosquito Coast was a book or, or a film, actually. Um, I just loved the concept and the name. And then I read it and I thought, oh, my God, a character drama of a family, a fugitive family on the run. That's super, super exciting. And usually for me in a script, it's always about one or two scenes that I know I can feel like uh, if I was to be lucky enough to play that part, I will fall in love with acting all over again. And for me, it was like the scene where I call my mom, the scene when I'm talking to my daughter, the scene in the desert, a lot of scenes in the number four episode. Um, so if I, if I can find one or two that I know that when I get to work, I'm going to be too scared to get out of my trailer because it's going to be the moment that I've been waiting for, then that's already a good sign that I would like it. But, you know, I'm talking like I was the only one that they wanted, you know, it was, it was one of those jobs where I had the script for four months and I was so insecure at this point in my life because I hadn't been acting for so many years um, that I couldn't imagine uh, casting for it because I wasn't strong enough to lose it is is what I've been saying. And, um, and of course, four months go by and my new agent said, uh, they've just called, Justin's just called, um, they said you did your casting, but everyone's saying they haven't seen it. And I said, no, I haven't done the casting. It's been four months. She goes, you have to do it now. You have to do the casting now. And I was like, oh, my God. So I set up my iPhone and I did the casting. I did one scene, three scenes they wanted me to do, and I was four months of just just wanting and needing and hoping that all just came out. And it's one of those beautiful calls that you get. Like my lawyer of 23 years that I've been working that I'm one of his clients. He's like, you just got like the best job of the year. Like, how can you sit there in Paris and not even, not even, you know, take a job and all of a sudden you get the job you've wanted. I said, you know, it's because there's so many jobs I don't get 
that you don't hear like a gambler you don't talk about what you lose you only talk about what you win you know so I got it and my lawyer was like so excited because I'm going to stay home on the weekend I'm going to do this deal around the clock and then we got a call from Rupert the director and he said please tell Melissa that this will be one of the hardest shoots you'll ever do and is she willing to come on this fox family hunt and I said, you know, you always say yes. Like, are you a great horse rider? You're like, yeah, sure, I'm a great horse rider. Are you a great, you know, you always say yes. So I was like, yes, I can't wait to do that. And then the reality hit when I got um, to the desert, I would say, that's when I was like, oh, this job's going to, this, this role is going to really take it out of me. So I got lucky. We did the deal. I got on the plane and I hadn't seen Los Angeles in so long. And I got to see the, you know, when you, you see the Hollywood sign and, you know, I live there, it's no big deal for me. But then I was reminded of, like, when you're working in this town with people that you love and a role that you love, there's no better feeling. So That's such a wonderful story. Like, I, I love it's It's got as much drama as some of the episodes. You're like, oh, man, the tension of waiting and then doing the casting and getting the role. That's That's awesome. That's a nice, like, behind the scenes, like, moment. But you mentioned, um, and I want to pick up on this, those few scenes that spoke to you in the script and one of them being when you call your parents in that first episode because that was one of my favorite moments in the first episode because it gave because I always I always love knowing more about the women when I'm watching a television show I like to follow their journeys (laughs) and so I love that moment um because it gives you insight into this character which up to that point we've been kind of following Allie and so I wanted to ask you know, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that re- relationship potentially. And so can you tease anything for us? Yes, look, there's there's a strategic way of playing Margot, very, very well thought out uh, with looks and feelings and the way she is and her apprehension. And and each episode, I'm sure you see that there's a side of Margot that even the kids say, oh, how did mummy know how to do that, you know? And you slowly see the dependency of Ali and Margot together and why. And so each moment, because I know where we're going, I know what she's done, I know what the family is on the run from, I know all of these things, it really gives you this sort of leverage, you know, to really take things to another level. And calling my mum for me was so important to know that each year, for nine years on the run, she has called her mother on the same day. And I wanted to look around. It's the same phone box. It's the same thing. She knows what to do. She knows where to go. And so there was something, though, that I wanted to show in that moment where she knew this would be the year that they would get caught. When I'm turning around and scanning the horizon and she starts to shake, that's when I wanted to show that for some reason this phone call this year is not the same as the other years. Just, it's such just a it's, thing, you know, like you do one take. I said to the director, I said, look, I've waited four months to do this scene. This scene is the reason why I want to do the show. So could we just shoot the close up first? Just please, because it's it, it's like you wake up in the morning on a recording day, on a big, heavy acting day, and your heart is heavy, you know. It feels heavy. You feel lump in your throat. You get to your trailer and you just can't wait to let it out. It's like something that you've wanted to tell somebody your whole life or, you know, and that finally the moment comes and you have to do it. And there's this feeling of like, because you're being recorded and it's for the world to see, you have this added pressure of like, don't mess up. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, that pressure, because I'm an athlete, I think is good. I think being an ex-athlete just gives you that sort of structure to, to drive it home. And then you forget that you shoot that scene like eight times from different angles, you know, like nobody sees that part. That's like the hardest part of all is the fact that you do the same scene, you know, 15 times from different angles. And by take, you know, eight and hour 10, your eyes are just like, <laughs> I wanted it to look, you know, not um, just, re- you know, I wanted to look natural. I didn't want to make, you know, just, just if I'm a bit aged or, you know, whatever, just, it's about just being Margot in all the glory, really. Yeah, I think I, I the 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 show does a really good job of focusing on your expressions, and so we get to see those almost micro expressions and those movements really nicely that give us so much of her character, especially early on when we don't get to see as much of the show from her perspective. Um, I, I I want to come back to that, but I did want to ask you kind of about one of the larger themes of the show, which. You know, Ali explicitly says it early on, which is this theme of American consumerism and its ill effects on society. And his stance is very, very clear. 
Mm. Margot's, I think, earlier on is a little bit more murky. Like, we see her much more in relationship to her family and her relationship to Allie. But this big idea, um, her connection is a little bit murkier. Where do you think she falls in that belief system? She was a very wealthy girl. She was raised in a wealthy family. Um, she was a professor um, of, you know, literature. So she's quite, she used to dress perfectly. She had a massive job and we'll find out why she's no longer in that, that profession. So she has no stance right now because she lost everything. It's almost like she looks at Ali and the minute they met, they were madly in love, but she had a different stature back then. And then something has happened to make her lose that stature. She sometimes wishes she was back to that fancy life, you know, when she's working in the library and looking out at a dreary window. And that's the, to show her that she went from being a professor to now working in a library. So what happened for her? So her stance, I mean, I don't think anyone in the family is on Ali's. Um, Ali has his own visions about things, you know. But that's what makes it exciting for Margot because I know where it's coming and I know where we're going and I know that the dilemma of the push and pull of where she feels she fits in this family is going to be explored even further. We get hints of her determination, which I really love, um, particularly in those moments. You know, there's the moment when they're about to leave, when the cops are coming and Ali is like, get your bag, we have to go, and he's in the, his workstation and Margot comes in. And my instinct was that there's going to be a big blowout fight. Like, they're going to have this fight. And then she just gets really excited. Yes. And good observation. Yes. It, yes. it was great. And, you know, we we get to see that those, like, brief moments. And then in episode four, it, like, really comes to life in specifically in that dinner scene. How yes. did you approach that moment? Well, in the in the I think there was a moment where she comes to tell the truth because she's guilty for calling the mother, the mm-hmm. parent. She has, he doesn't know that at this point. So there's a lot of guilt coming out of that. She realized the only way to deal with Ali is to join him. So she comes in hesitant and then realizes that she gets sucked into that Bonnie and Clyde kind of, they're almost sadistic with each other. The more sick his ideas and crazy his ideas are, the more she gets on board. There's two parts to that. One, it's, you know, it's fight or flight. If she doesn't join this, there will be a blowout fight and she just can't afford to do that. And there's a big reason why which we don't know yet. And then what I wanted in number four was to show that, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it my way, Margot's way. And we know that when you do it Margot's way, you're going to get out of trouble. And that's what I wanted to show is that all of a sudden she knows how to blow out all those ties in the hacienda. She knows how to trick. She knows how to do that. Why? It's growing. It's the part of the the tapestry of this this character of just showing sort of the the, the onion uh, layer, what, the layers of, what do you call it? And my, my English goes sometimes. The, <laughs> all the layers. You know the layers of the onion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, come on. So this is, this is the part that I wanted to show. And the kids are like, wow, mama is, uh... and you know, there's a moment in the bedroom when she turns on Dina. Where, what mm-hmm. did you say to Chewie? You know, that, that, that was a moment where I was like, I want her to almost snap, not as a mother, but almost as an evil almost like a, a woman that you don't recognize just for a split second. And then she pulls herself back. So I'm trying to give you little hints as to where this is going, you know, and uh, we're, we're getting these yeah, 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 yeah. tiny hints. I love it. Um, when Charlie to sleep in the car, for example, and she could, you know, stroke his face like a tender mother. And she just, she pulls her hand back as, as to, you know what? I, I, I don't want to wake him up. You know, she, there's moments where she'll be super maternal and then just pull back. Rupert Wyatt, I was I was reading some of the production notes prior to this, and he referred to Margot as the actual patriarch of the family, not Allie. Mm-hmm. And and of course, again, during that dinner sequence, it becomes very, very evident when she kind of takes the reins. Like I, I don't think there is a line of dialogue for Allie to say for for quite a bit of time in that moment. And, you know, when she's holding the gun, like you, you reference and shooting out the tires, like this notion of Margot being the patriarch, what does that what does that mean in terms of kind of traditional roles and how or, or even if they're subverted through her character? I mean, you know, it's weird. I've never been like a feminist or, you know, or I always believe, you know, women have such a beautiful place in society and men have such. I mean, I love men, you know, it's like 
you can't live without them. You can you can live with with them. You can't live without them, whatever. So I feel like it's very in today's TV world. We obviously need. Um, you can't afford to just call her mother like in the film. Uh, she's more than that. Um, to be the patriarch of the family, I think yes. In, in my with my sons too, I'm I'm there. I'm their protector. I'm the one that will help them. I'm the one that will get them to safety. It's a tricky one because I can't give away too much. But, yeah, she, she realises that when Ali's flailing, she has to step in. Um, but even the way Ali, but they work so well together, even though she's taking the reins in that scene, all of the decisions she's made has been worked through with Ali. The two of them don't operate without each other. Absolutely not. She never does something. She might do something, but Ali will quickly know why she's doing that, you know, and he loves it about her. I think he, he could see him just like his eyes kind of glisten. It's almost like they have this push and pull relationship. It's not the healthiest relationship. I would say I would highly, you know, I'm highly against, you know, promoting <laughs> this is the perfect marriage or the perfect family, but it worked. They work well. They work well. And I love that moment when we were shooting out the tires. It was just like, Wow. You know, she doesn't blink at mm. all. Does she? The first few times I, I was getting all the tires perfectly and they were like, uh, you look a little too good. Huh? So let's let's do a few takes where you miss maybe a few tires. I'm like, miss? Do I have to miss? Okay, I'll try and miss. <laughs> so I was like, you know, it's, I also think when you when you cross the roles too of like giving a woman, you know, wearing this beautiful Hacienda Mexican sort of gown with a, you know, a pistol, like, in the, the, the glorious light, you know, I guess we're going against, you know, um, the cliché, but um, but I love it. I even love the getaway of just jumping and just getting in the car with one thing and keeping the arm outside the window, like, all of those little things, and the kids are just like, wow, mum's, mum's uh, where did she learn to do that, you know? So yeah, fun. she she got these, like, great traditional sort of, like, um, symbols of power in those moments. Like, she is behind the driver's wheel quite literally like making like getting them moving from point a to point b and you kind of mentioned these notions of like uh her moments of being maternal and her moments of being protector and we often find that women are defined by the roles they're playing in their characters lives you know kind of like episodes i love the episode four title of mother daughter sister godmother because it feels like a cheeky way of pointing that out and Margot, while she's clearly informed by these pieces of who she is, isn't isn't simplified into one of those boxes. But what do you think does define her? I think she's the man and woman in one. She's she takes both qualities. She takes the masculine side and the feminine side and brings them together. She can do both. There was a documentary on Apple where they showed cubs, you know, lions in the wild uh, filmed at night and you could see how they behave in the night, you know. And I watched it and to me that was Margot 100%. It's like, you know, danger's coming. You know you shouldn't leave your cubs, but you're going to and you're going to fight blood, tooth and nail. And to me, that's exactly the way Margot is and that's how, she, that's how I feel about her. She would go to the lengths of danger to protect herself too. There's a big reason why. Less and less and less Ali for some reason when he turns on her in number five. I think this is like a big, big no-no for her. So turning on Mungo, I'm not really answering your question. But it's um, she's a mother first and foremost, but she will she will go to, you know, whatever she has to do to protect her, her babies. Just like you'll see in that documentary, you know, she, she leaves her kids, for, her cubs, the, the lion leaves the cubs for two days for two days straight to go get food, to go get food. I'm sorry, my kids are hungry. They may not make it because I had to go and get food, but what's worse, dying of hunger or risking leaving them to go and get food and bring it back. You know, she's constantly making the choice whether to go left or right. That gave me goosebumps in context of Margot's character. Um, Lion, a little lioness. Yeah, that that notion of like having to make those hard choices and – having somebody who truly like thinks in that context Mm. and seeing that person on screen and knowing that is going to be, I think shifting maybe a little bit of how we watch or how I watch at least the, the final episodes. Um, I want to focus a little bit on episode four because it is the most, most recent one when this is coming out. And I truly to me felt like a pivotal shift 
for Margot's character because she gets to take so much more ownership of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to ask, like, what was shooting that like? You know, it, it not only involves that focus shift onto Margot, it introduces the character of Lucretia, played by Ophelia Medina, and it was directed by Natalia Berstein. Like, can you tell us a little bit about that experience, you know, getting to focus on these complex women um, with Natalia at the helm? Um, Natalia was exceptional. I, I think it really helped to be directed by a female, absolutely. Um, Ophelia being such a, a legend actress in Mexico, so we got to have ha- have that. But we worked um, every day, actually, on rehearsals of just drilling the dialogue round and round and round and round to find moments. And for me, it was less about acting and more about reacting. And I didn't want to drive the scene. I wanted to react as much as possible. And because pretty much episode four is with Margot's sort of um, force, she's the force of that episode, it was a lot to just map it, map it out perfectly. Um, don't hit the same notes at the same time. Page, you have to look at the pages, you know. I always think of Mel Gibson when he used to put the pages around the trailer and sort of do a graph, you know, of like emotions, like where did you hit this kind of emotion? And so it's not all one line, you know, you want to go up, you want to go down, you want to go super high, you want to, you want to orchestrate it like a piece of music. And so Natalia and Ophelia and I really sat down and just tried to make a great piece of music really in that, in that scene. And uh, it, was, it was also about me keeping it small. You know, sometimes when you feel things so strongly, you forget how your face is looking, you know. Like I'm very expressive and I thought I need to keep it as tight as possible, as small as possible so that, that you're not distracted so much about my facial expressions but more about what I'm saying. And that, was, that took a lot of takes, I would say. What was it like shooting on that location, that, that kind of beautiful home? And, you know, the set is just gorgeous. I mean, phenomenal. Like, every day I was like, can, can you guys send that to Paris, that chair? Like, you, you see that beautiful chaise lounge with the little wicker planter? Can you guys wrap that up and send it to Paris? They're like, yeah, no, this is the set, Melissa. We, we can't take pieces of the set away. And I'm like, oh, I was so inspired, you know, by the atrium and the flooring and the paint, and I was just taking tons and tons of pictures. So for me, it just painted this perfect um, sort of uh, image for me to just play in these sort of these, that beautiful dress and, you know, I, and I remember it was Logan's birthday so we had a mariachi band and we were all dancing in the courtyard. Of course we were like running behind so we're like, yeah, this is not a funny day. We've got a serious scenes to shoot, you know, but it was just a lot of joy. You know, there's been, especially because we came out of the desert episode which was really hard, hard physically, hard mentally and then we got to come to Mexico and go, wow, okay. This is the best. So it was great. Absolutely amazing. Something I found uh, very interesting watching it, and especially in episodes three and four, as more cast is introduced and it's not quite so focused just on this family, but also on what this family is doing and the ramifications they're having on the people around them. Um, but in in these like episodes three and four, how Margot and Dina, specifically under Ali's direction for Dina, use their place as white women and their perceived fragility to pull Chewie over to their cause, though it only works to an extent. How did you kind of decide to play those scenes with Scotty Tovar, which were truly just like mesmerizing to watch? Oh, I'm so glad you loved it. Yeah, it's, um, we were, it was tricky because we were kind of like bait, you know, um, to pull him over to our side. I mean, there was a lot of work on that storyline because a lot of us didn't know, was it Dina or was it me? Are we using Dina? A lot of us, I think the parents use the kids a lot to get certain things that they need, which is very bad. Um, And the kids are willing to go along with it. So Dina was like kind of the the person, she was like the pawn in the chess match really um, for us in a lot of ways. But it was hard because, you know, I think seriously we did have an affection for Chewie. You know, there was a moment where we were taking care of him, but I'm a bit wary to say that for Margot because I know where she knows what's going on. So I'm, I, I don't want to give too much away, um, but I know that is it sincere or is it just part of the plot for her to get to where she needs to get to? I, this conversation is making me be like, oh, I want to know what happens. Well, you know, also <laughs> like when we went to see Chewie in the Hacienda and he's been hurt, we're checking in on him. I just said to Natalia, I'm sorry, I don't really care so much if he's doing okay or not. I'm more concerned about the security cameras. And so I just played it by looking up up in the corners all the time. Yeah, I think part of what 
makes these moments interesting because my narrative instinct would tell me it was going to go one way and then it would go another way because that scene, when they go to see him, you kind of expect, based on the scenes you've seen earlier, some sort of like uh, warmth. But it was a very cold scene, which I, I liked. I liked that it took that route because it felt very real and authentic for mm. the character. Yes. Um, I think it's... um. You know, acting, I mean, acting is really uh, telling a story perfectly uh, when there's so many elements at play, like a direct, you know, our director has a certain point of view, the actors come to set with their certain point of view, the cinematographer has to light you to show the certain point of view. All of those elements, if you're really lucky, all of a sudden it's just magic. It's pure magic. It's effortless. And I felt like shooting this was effortless, really. It felt... It felt like a lot of the work was done by sitting and reading and reading and reading and finding the meaning of the words. But by the time you get to set, it's just effortless. It feels like it's you're at the right place, filming the right scene with the right emotion at the right time. And it doesn't often happen that way. You know, you're on set sometimes and it's just forced and it doesn't feel authentic and for real. That's thanks to produ- the production coordinator and our producer, Ed McDonald, because... He, they found these sets. They found these places to make us feel like we were really living in that place. And they were authentic where we were. Nothing was fake. So that was the gift of the show, I think. And that really shows on screen is by by seeing the fact that these sets were the real thing. You want to go to Mexico City and run in a market? You're going to be in Mexico City running in a market. It was just like, wow, a logistic nightmare and, and tough personally because you're like, huh, God, where am I going now? You know, like... Where where is this set? Like, am I gonna make it? Am I gonna make it out alive? You know, it's like one of those feelings. It's uh, but great. I mean, it makes us. You have to act less, really. It's just all there. <laughs> what do you hope people get out of watching the story of this family? Like, what kinds of conversations do you hope it inspires? To be honest, the conversation we're having. I want people to ask questions like that. You know, it's. I am having a lot of these conversations with friends, like by text and WhatsApp and FaceTime. People all over the world are like, oh, my God. So it's really nice. You know, not often do you do a show where it makes people ask, ask questions about, you know, what's going on with this family, what period is it set in, because there's no technology. That's what I love. But that's, it's modern day. But the fact that we remove the element of technology all of a sudden makes it timeless, and that's what I love the most. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Still Watching, presented by Apple TV+. New episodes of The Mosquito Coast drop every Friday on Apple TV+. You can find me and my work on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram mostly at Run With Skizzers. That's S-K-I-Z-Z-E-R-S. Uh, and you can find my books and my work at my website, PreetiChibber.com. This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.